But my sermon this morning is actually not from the First Samuel passage. It is from the psalm we sang, Psalm 21, um, an amazing psalm. But to begin our sermon, we're going to actually travel quite far from it. We're actually going to go up to the book of Revelation, chapter 2. And we're going to look at verse 23 of Revelation, chapter 2, because there's a reading there which is kind of funny to the ear. I'm, I'm reading from, to start with, I'm going to read from the King James Version, chapter 2 and verse 23 of Revelation says this, Jesus himself is talking to uh, a false teacher. He calls her the woman Jezebel, and in verse 23 he says, and I will kill her children with death. I will kill her children with death. The New King James Version follows that reading. Uh, It's in modern English, but it says, I will kill her children with death. And when you hear that, you go, well, that'd probably do it. Death leads to death, and so that'd work. But it seems a strange way of putting it. I will kill her children with death. And modern translations beside the New King James have a different reading. The Mark down a few of them. The, the New American Standard has, um, I will kill her children with pestilence. And the NIV, at least the original NIV, which is the only one worth reading, uh, kind of paraphrases and says, I will strike her children dead. And that seems to make a lot more sense to the ear. Um, and you wonder why some translations say, I will kill her children with death. Well, you might think that this is a textual variant kind of thing. The King James, the New King James agree. Uh, These others seem different, so it's probably something in the original. It's not. In truth, the, the literal translation, the one that is closest to the original, and, and, and there's no textual issue here at all, is actually the one the King James uses. I will kill her children with death. And that's why the New King James follows that. Uh, but the, the NASB doesn't have it wrong. The NASB has the meaning of the phrase, I will kill her children with pestilence. What's, what's playing here is a way that Semitic people talk. Um, they talk in a certain way about certain concepts because there is the thought that Everything that leads to or flows from something important is of the essence of that thing. In this case, we're talking about death. Uh, what, what leads to death? What flows from it? Well, a number of things. Uh, sickness leads to death. If you are sick, you are on your way to dying. Now, you may not die. You may get better. It may be a light illness. But nobody gets sick and is moving more towards being healthy you're moving towards death. If you are in old age, the Bible says you should be honored and white hair is to be respected, but it also says that old age leads to death. And trust me, ask somebody who is old, they will tell you old age is not improving my health. Old age is leading to death. And so um, everything that partakes of an essence is of that essence. And we even kind of bring that over into English If I were to look at you and say, you're going to be the death of me, 
you know what I'm saying. It's not that I'm going to die directly of you, but you're going to do something that causes my death, you know, and I'd prefer you not do that. This is a, a worldview kind of thing. It talks about the essence of a thing, and death is the curse. God brought death into the world at sin, and everything that leads to death and everything that partakes of death can be called death. And so the Nazbi has the essence right, uh, I'll kill your children of pestilence, but the Semitic way of saying it is, I'll kill your children of death. Now, why am I going on about this? Well, it's not just death that this works with. It's, it's really every major concept. That which partakes of a thing is of the essence of that thing and can be called that thing. The term salvation is the same way. Psalm 21 is a royal psalm. It's obviously talking about a king and the king's relation to God, but in the, in the first verse, we hear that this king is going to receive salvation. To, to read from the New King James, The king shall have joy in your strength, O Lord, and in your salvation, how greatly shall he rejoice. So the king is going to get saved. He's going to experience salvation. What's being talked about here? Well, if you look at how the New Testament uses the Old Testament, you will see that this term salvation is often used in terms of you will be reconciled to God, you will receive an entrance into his glory, you will be saved from judgment at death and go into eternal life. Is that what this verse is talking about? Well, the answer is yes, but in the way of uh, that reference to, to death. If you look at this term in many contexts, uh, it seems to talk about God acting in strength to deliver his people, but oftentimes it's from things like Amorites, uh, sickness, uh, bad situations. If you go to a liberal seminary, they will tell you now, that's what salvation meant in the Old Testament. God acting in the temporal world to save you from the, from the, the Assyrians. Uh, the New Testament spiritualizes it. It's totally different, and the implication is the New Testament has it wrong. But that's a liberal seminary, and they're wrong. The, the, what's going on here is that that which is of the essence of a thing is of the thing. What does salvation mean? Well, salvation means that God exerts strength to grant deliverance to those that he is in covenant with. Salvation is extended from God to his people. And what is the ultimate salvation? Well, it's to be forgiven of sins, to be brought into his presence, to live with him in eternal life. That is what happens to the saved person. That's not all that happens to a saved person. We are not just waiting for God to act in strength to deliver us when we die. The truth is, God in covenant with us delivers us all the time. The world, the flesh, the devil would love to crush us, but God is acting in strength and he is delivering us and everything is of the essence. Does God act for the benefit of the not covenantal person? Does God save them temporally? 
Well, the answer is really no. God doesn't extend his hand to deliver them, whether you're talking about heaven or hell, or whether you're talking about in this life, God acts for his elect. He acts for his people. He loves them. He saves them. Salvation is a part of what he does for them. Uh, It has this world effects. And when you see this world effects, it testifies to the coming world effects. The king is going to experience salvation, and it's going to be something that happens in this world. God is going to extend his strength and the king is going to know salvation. Now, the king is in fellowship with God, and he is going to be in God's presence forever. And if you listen to the psalm we sang, that's there. But the first couple of verses are about something God is going to do for him in time at a certain event. And what God is going to do is in verse 2, this is put in the future tense, and it should be. This is something the psalm is prophesying. What will the salvation be? What will the exertion of strength be? Well, in verse 2, you have given him his heart's desire and have not withheld the requests of his lips. So the king's going to greatly rejoice in God because God's going to do something. It's going to be an act of salvation, and the king is going to have asked for it. This is is very covenantal. The king is approaching his God. Um, The lesser is approaching the greater, and the lesser has requests of the greater. There is something on his heart that he deeply wants, and he is asking God to give it, and God is going to give it, and this giving is going to be described as salvation. It's a gift of God's strength. And the psalmist now uses the only Selah in the whole psalm to say, now think about what I've just said. God is going to act for the king. It's going to be salvation. The king has something burning in his heart, or in this case, three somethings. And God's going to answer it. And this is important. So really stop and think about what's going on. The king will seek God. God will answer him in the affirmative. What are we talking about? Well, verse 3 and 4 tell us what the king deeply desired of God. What did the king go to God and ask for? Well, there's three things. First, you will meet him with the blessings of goodness. That's the first one. The, uh, the Septuagint translates that one like this. Thou will go before him with the blessings of goodness. So the first thing that this king asks is, God, before I show up, uh, I want goodness to be there to meet me. When I arrive, wherever I'm coming from, I want there to be goodness in the world, significant goodness. I want to be met with the blessings of goodness that you've already put into the world. The second one is, you set a crown of pure gold upon his head, which is pretty natural for a king to ask. He's going to ask God to be crowned king, and God's going to do that. And it's going to be a crown of purest gold. Now, what does a pure gold crown symbolize? Uh, Historically, it's been a sign of a good and godly rule. It's been a sign of a blessed rule. The gold is pure. 
pure gold is a sign of righteousness and goodness. The king is asking the Lord, now make me, make me a king and put a crown of gold upon my head. And the Lord is going to put upon his head the purest of pure gold. He is going to be crowned king. So there's something before he gets there, which is God will meet him with goodness. There's something that happens when he arrives, and that is he will have a crown put on his head. And then there's something that will happen after this coronation, and that's verse 4. He asked life from you, and you gave it to him. So the king looked at God and said, uh, I want three things. I want to be met with, with goodness. I want to be crowned. And I ask from you life. Well, uh, there's a lot of stuff in the Hebrew Bible about life. Long life will happen if you're righteous, as a general rule. Uh, honor your father and mother, and if you do, you'll live long in the land. That sort of thing. And so we're not that surprised that the king turns to God and says, give me life. But we are utterly shocked at how God answers it. He asked life from you, and you gave it to him, length of days, forever and ever. So the king asked for life, and God, when he gives him salvation, when he acts for him, God answers his request for life by giving him life where he will live forever and ever and ever. Uh, I've watched Bible college professors wrestle with that and say, well, in the Hebrew Bible, it can't be talking about eternal life. This is just a statement of long life. They're totally wrong. The, the Hebrew clearly says this king has asked for three things. He asked for life, and God gave him eternal life forever, forever, forever. The Hebrew is as strong as it can get. This king is going to be given eternal life. God will act for him and give him these three things. What king in all time and space could this describe? Could it describe David? Well, no, quite frankly. As we watch David's rule, it's not a rule of a crown of pure gold. In fact, it's tarnished. David's rule has all sorts of tarnish on his crown. Um, David was pre... He was given some goodness before he got there, but this king was met with great goodness, goodness most high. And um, while Peter was not talking about this psalm, while he was talking about Psalm 16, in the book of Acts on the day of Pentecost, David turns to a similar reference and says, David's talking about eternal life. Is he talking about himself? Well, probably not, because over there is his tomb. He's dead. And I interpret the Bible at face value, and when the Bible talks about eternal life, it means it. So, he's over there. So, this can't be David, and quite frankly, every other king, if you go look for him, you'll find him. They're laying in the ground somewhere. But this king, God is going to act in salvation for, and he's going to give him eternal life forever, forever, forever. There's only one king that's had that happen, and that's Jesus of Nazareth, he is the promised king, the king of kings. This is a royal psalm, and it's about the coronation of King Jesus. Because after his resurrection from the dead, he has given life forever, forever, forever. Christ has asked this of his father. 
Covenantally, he has approached the Father. The Father has blessed him with the blessings of the covenant he's in with his Father. The Father has sent goodness before him. And that is an incredibly important thing. When the Lord Christ appeared among us, uh, there had been thousands of years of God laying the foundation for his coming. If God had simply said, now I'm going to send the Lord Christ among men at an appointed time, but you guys just kind of hang on and I'm not going to do anything until Christ gets here, uh, Christ would have entered a world of utter hellishness. There would have been nothing good because only good things come from God. But before Christ came, you had the promises of the Christ, and you had God call a visible church out of the people, and you had God give the worship that is in the Mosaic law that testified to Christ. You had God ministering grace through the prophets, through the priests, uh, through the kings to some degree. You had God lay a foundation for the Lord Christ for thousands of years. When Jesus was born, God had laid this long-flowing trench of goodness right to his feet. And the world was utterly prepared for the king God would send. Christ asked, Lord, prepare the world for me. And God did, in all the goodness that had come before. Jesus was born into the house of David. He was the promised branch of righteousness. Christ asked, make me a king of of my people. And God put the crown upon him of purest gold. Christ said, give me life. And God acted to give him life. When, When I teach Christianity at Eastern, I usually have some Christians in my class. I'm very glad to have them, and I I actually want to strengthen them. One of the things I like doing, because I'm teaching at Eastern, is I want to show Christians that there's an intellectually viable way to be Christian, and, and I want to strengthen these Christians. But I do play kind of a game with them when we get to the concept of uh, how do you share the gospel? I ask, you know, okay, you're a Christian, you go to First Baptist Church or what have you, uh, what would you share as the gospel? And then they might walk me through the four spiritual laws or, you know, the Romans Road or something like that. And then I say, Here is, here's how the Apostle Paul sums up the gospel. He's going to do it at much further length in Romans, but right at the beginning of Romans, Paul kind of sums up everything he's going to talk about. It's the gospel. And in verse 1 through 4, this is how Paul sums up the gospel. Paul, a bondservant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separated to the gospel of God, so that's what we're talking about, which he promised before through, the, through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his son, Jesus Christ our Lord, who was born of the seed of David according to the flesh and declared to be the Son of God with power according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. So I asked the Christians in my class, now, when you shared the gospel of Jesus Christ, how come you didn't tell people he was the son of David? Because Paul finds that very important. He says, you know, I've been set apart to the gospel of God, and and when I tell them the gospel, one of the first things I tell them is, Jesus is the son of David. 
do y'all do that? Is that one of the, the four spiritual laws? Well, no. Uh, but it's important to Paul because salvation comes through a king. It comes through the king that God has anointed. It's going to be a king in David's line, and Jesus is the son of David. That's an important part of the gospel. But even more than that, how is the gospel validated? Well, it's validated because God raised Christ from the dead. Christ was laying dead in the ground. And Paul doesn't say, now, Jesus of Nazareth decided to get back up, and he did. He says, God, by the Holy Spirit, raised Jesus from the dead, God the Father. And this validates everything Jesus has said. Because Jesus has gone out and said a huge amount of things about God, and if God didn't approve, God would leave him in the ground. God would not validate his message by raising him from the dead, but God did. God acted and sent the Holy Spirit and raised him from the dead. Now, in the context of our psalm, that's kind of important. Because at the beginning, the king is asking from God something, and God gives it to him. God the Father gives it to God the Son. And one of these things is life eternal. And just in case the connection is lost to us, um, why, have, why have, has God done this? Why has God answered this prayer and given the king salvation? It's for the king trusts in the Lord, in verse 7. For the king trusts in the Lord, and through the mercy of the Most High, he shall not be moved. This means that God the Son, Jesus of Nazareth, in covenant with his Father, had to trust his Father. Jesus of Nazareth knows what it means to live by faith. Jesus of Nazareth knows what it means to depend on God's mercy, his has said, to be in the hands of God and totally have to trust God. I don't know about you, but that's incredibly meaningful to me. From cover to cover, God calls upon his elect people to be people of faith. And what faith means is, I trust God. It means I don't trust in myself or my works. I don't trust in the alliances I might be able to make. I don't trust in anything but God himself. And if I trust in God himself, then if God doesn't do anything, I'm totally messed over. I don't know if that's ever occurred to you, but our religion is trusting God. God has to act. If God doesn't act you're going to fall. If God doesn't act, you'll be crushed. You have no other hope. You trust in God. Is God trustworthy? Will he come through? Am I able to really trust in him? You know, when things are going great, you don't ask those questions, but when things are really stormy and you're sick and you're wrestling with cancer and your best friend has decided they don't like you anymore and you smash your car... Uh, then you begin to kind of wonder, will God come through? Our religion is totally based on trusting God. And if it's really, really dark, you may even find yourself a little resentful of that. 
you might find yourself saying, I really wish that I had something a little bit more tangible to hold on to. I'm just trusting in God. Well, here is an absolute profound truth. Jesus, your king, Jesus, your salvation, Jesus, your every blessing, lived a human life where he experienced trusting in his father. If his father didn't act, Jesus would be left in the tomb. But the Father acts, the Lord Christ asked of him life, and Christ received it, and he trusted in God, and his hope was validated in the resurrection. Your Lord knows what it's like to live by faith. He has not asked anything of you he himself has not done. He has received salvation from his Father, That was part of the covenant. He has known what it's like to trust God. You're not alone. You're in pretty good company. Jesus has walked by faith. And God was trustworthy. God gave him this act of his power, and he lived. And uh, when he acted, this is what God did in verse 5. Speaking of the king... His glory is great in your salvation. Honor and majesty you have placed upon him. So when God raised him from the dead, he's now king, everything has been laid for him. When all of this has come to a fruition, uh, God the Father has glorified the Son. God the Father has, has shown every uh, light upon him that could be. God has raised him to the highest place, He's glorified. Why is he glorified? Well, in verse 6 it says, You have made him most blessed forever. You have made him exceedingly glad with your presence. There are two parts of that I would like to address. The first one is, You have made him exceedingly glad with your presence. Christ walked by faith. He has come to the end of that journey. He is alive forevermore. Uh, There had been a a slight separation in a way because Christ had come to earth as a man. And he had walked by faith. In the Garden of Gethsemane, you can see him wrestling with that. But now for eternity to eternity, there's not going to be anything between the Father and the Son. No separation at all. There there is no division. The Father has embraced him. He, He is going to have no separation in any way. And this is why he is, quote, made most blessed forever. The the Hebrew can be interpreted in two ways. It can be, one, Jesus receives more blessing than anything else in the cosmos. And that's not wrong. I mean, if you think about who is most blessed in all of eternity, Jesus of Nazareth is the guy. But it also can mean... God has poured blessing upon him to be a blessing that the Father is now with the Son and the Son is the source of blessing for everyone else. In fact, uh, that's so clear in the Hebrew, if you have an English Standard Version, you will notice that there is a footnote to this verse which says, or made him a source of blessing forever. 
And the Hebrew does seem to imply that. Jesus walked by faith into dark moments, into Gethsemane. He walked in dark moments where his hometown wanted to throw him over a cliff. But he walked by faith, and God validated that faith. God was trustworthy. And when the process was over, Jesus had been made the source of blessing for everyone, the greatest source of blessing ever to be found. God had glorified him at the end of this process so that now he is the undisputed blessing from God. If you are looking for a place to be blessed... The only place to look is this one who has walked by faith, and he will bless you, because that's where God's blessings come from now. And having been answered covenantally, having been validated, now in verse 8 and to the end, we see a victorious Christ. The king has, has had the crown put on his head, he now lives forever, and what happens? Well... Your hand will find all your enemies. Your right hand will find those who hate you. You shall make them as a fiery oven in the time of your anger. The Lord shall swallow them up in his wrath, and the fire shall devour them. Their offspring you shall destroy from the earth, and their descendants from among the sons of men. This is only natural, really. It's a, it's a royal psalm. And the, the king rules in eternity. What's going to happen next? Well, there's going to come a time, and this is again prophesied in the future, in the day of the king's wrath, whenever that comes, when that day comes, he's going to turn them into an oven and set them on fire. Uh, if, if you have ever felt that uh, historic language about hell fire, brimstone, that sort of thing, uh, was a a little outdated. The Bible doesn't agree, because the day of God's wrath, the day of Christ's wrath, is described in just those terms. When the the, the wrath of the king comes down, he's going to turn his enemies into an oven, they're going to be on fire perpetually. Um, That sounds a little harsh. Why, Why is the king doing this when the day of wrath comes? It doesn't come immediately. But when it comes, he's going to do that. Why? Well, um, before we get there, we need to look at the totality of it. Uh, Their offspring he's going to destroy. Now, remember, covenantally, an offspring of a person is covenantally from that person. If I am the son of my father, I'm partaking of my father. Uh, The offspring of the wicked are not repentant persons. They are people who have walked in their forefathers' footsteps, and they are like their fathers. But this day of wrath is going to completely eliminate the wicked and everybody who's connected to the wicked and everybody who produces the wicked's fruits. It's going to be absolute, it's going to be total. Why is that? Well, in verse 11 we read, For they intended evil against you, that is the king. They devised a plot which they are not able to perform. So that's a note, I guess. Uh, the king strikes his enemies because they're enemies. Why, though, so hard and wrathful? Well, let's go back again and think about what the king has become. Jesus the king, Jesus the son of David, is literally all of God's blessings. 
anyone who would be blessed, anyone who would have a good life, anyone who would know joy in this life and the next, it comes through Jesus. It doesn't come through anywhere else. So what happens if you are the enemy of Jesus? What happens if you don't like him and you want to oppose him? What are you opposing? You are literally opposing the only source of blessing that mankind has. You are at war with the only hope any human being can ever have. You are literally an enemy of mankind and every person who makes it up because you are at war with their only Savior. Listen to how Paul deals with this in 1 Thessalonians. Um, he's, he's talking to the church there that's being persecuted by their own countrymen, and he describes it the way the church has been persecuted in, in Judea. This is verse 14 to 16 of chapter 2. Uh, For you, brethren, became imitators of the churches of God, which are in Judea in Christ Jesus. For you also suffered the same things from your own countrymen, just as they did from the Judeans, who killed both the Lord Jesus and their own prophets, and have persecuted us. And they do not please God, and are contrary to all men, forbidding us to speak to the Gentiles that they may be saved, so as to always fill up the measure of their sins. But wrath has come upon them to the uttermost. Now, this is a passage that rarely gets preached on because it's very politically incorrect. Uh, if you go into worldly circles, they'll say, well, now this, this is a, a part of the Bible that's anti-Semitic. It's anti-Jewish. Uh, we shouldn't talk like that. Paul's out of turn. He's not. Paul is being very realistic about what happens if you oppose Jesus and the advance of his kingdom. You are contrary to all men. If you want to stymie the kingdom of Christ, if you want to push it back, you are pushing back life, health, and blessing. You are keeping people from that. And Paul says they are against all men They don't want the Gentiles to be saved. They are filling up their sins to the uttermost, and wrath has, quote, come upon them to the uttermost or to the last, because you really can't go anywhere further than this. If you oppose Jesus' kingship, you are at the apex of sinfulness. There is nothing else for you to go to. Now, on the charge of anti-Semitism, I would point out to them that Paul begins by saying, now all the Greeks around you are doing the exact same thing, which means it's not just a Jewish thing, it's basically everyone who hates the kingdom of Jesus. But Jesus is blessing. Jesus is life. Jesus is anyone's only hope. And so there's going to come a day of wrath. Why? Because God has held out every blessing he could give, and men have been at war with that very door. They have wanted to bolt it. They have wanted to lock it away. They have wanted to brick it up. And this is the only way life can be had. When you talk about offending a holy God, how does it get worse than that? So the day of wrath will come, and it's because men will fight this king, but this king has already received grace. He has been blessed with salvation. He has become the salvation of others. 
and the day of his wrath will lead to his victory. And what he's punishing them for, they will never succeed at. They intended evil against him and, quote, they devised a plot which they are not able to perform. In other words, they won't succeed at fighting the kingdom. And why? Well, before we get to the day of wrath, verse 12 is about what will happen on the way. Therefore, you will make them turn their back. You will make ready your arrows on your string towards their faces. I don't know about you, but shooting somebody in the face with an arrow is kind of, yeah, I wouldn't like that. Um, We're told that the king now glorified That crown is going to stay on his head forever. He is going to be surrounded by those who will hate his kingdom, but they will not succeed in in destroying it, no matter what they do. Because the king will be actively protecting the kingdom, his bow will be active, and whatever they intend to do to destroy the kingdom, it won't happen. We will get to the day of judgment, and they will have failed. Because the king is now all-powerful, and the all-powerfulness of the king is expressed in the last verse, be exalted, O Lord, in your own strength. There seems to be a comparison there. Be exalted, O Lord, in your own strength. We will sing and praise your power. The psalm begins with, the king depends upon the strength of God. He asks of him things that he needs, and God gives it to him, but there's an emphasis on the power of the Father. As we come to the end of the psalm, the psalmist makes a point of saying, now, O king, show your power. And most interpreters agree, we're talking to the king in verse 13. Uh, When did this change of talking to him happen? Well, it probably started in verse 8. Your hand will find all your enemies. The middle of the psalm is a turning from focusing on the Father and focusing on the Son, Uh, The father's strength saves the son. The son now has all the strength, and he rules in the midst of his enemies. Um, Now the son is walking in power. But if that's the case, and most interpreters say it's the case, then in two places in our psalm, we have had the king called the Lord, the divine name. And the only way to understand this psalm is if God the Father, the Lord, is in a covenant with God the Son, the King, the Lord. God is talking to God, and the King, God, now rules in his own strength, and he is glorified, and he is worthy of worship. If you take the, the, the way most commentators, believe me or not, view the psalm, at the end of the psalm, we're talking about the King, and the King is being worshipped. And there is no one in Scripture that Scripture allows you to worship but the Lord. So this is a prophecy of the event of Jesus the King. There is no king who can match this other than Jesus of Nazareth. And what are we told? We are told that he knows what it's like to walk by faith. He has been validated for his faith. He has become the source of all blessing. His enemies will never succeed, and he is God, and he shall live forever. This is the 
hope you have. Your king has been blessed by God. He has walked ahead of you in the life of faith. He has become blessing for you. He will protect you, and you can celebrate his strength. And such it is.